We are live in the Begino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark Cast Iron Building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight's book, The Chalmers Race, Ty Cobb, Napoleon Lajouet, and the controversial 1910 batting title that became a national obsession, published by the University of Nebraska Press, the author Rick Hume. Please join me as we welcome Rick to the clubhouse. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Well, thanks so much for coming. And on this non-playoff night. <laughs> and uh, the, the story is fascinating, uh, and your book is really tremendous. Uh, I thought I knew baseball history fairly well. I didn't really know this story. And when we got it, when I started to read it, you just really brought me right in, and it, it felt like a movie. Uh, has this ever been optioned, by the way, just out of interest? You no, know, it, it hasn't been optioned, but I, I wrote it in, with a movie in mind. Um, I'm a big movie buff, and <laughs> so it's interesting that you say that. Uh, the, uh, the cast of characters is really what drew me to uh, to write about it. Uh, there's a terrific cast of characters. It includes Hall of Famers. It includes uh, some real characters themselves. So the book itself, um, I had a movie in mind when I wrote it. Of course, uh, it may, may or may not ever be optioned, but it does have that kind of feel to it, uh, and that was on purpose. Uh, well, it, it definitely came across, and you and I haven't discussed Thank that Thank you, no. Right now, definitely. <laughs> and... Uh, like you said, there's leading characters in effect, and then there's the, the, the supporting cast. So I thought maybe a good way to get going is there's really three lead characters, I guess, if uh, you want to look at it that way. Uh, Ty Cobb, Napoleon Lajouet. By the way, is that the correct pronunciation? Yes, uh, Lajouet uh, is the, was the way it was pronounced uh, to his uh, suitability. Uh, Lajoie was the French pronunciation. So... He, he could possibly um, correct it once in a while, but he, he just kind of fell in line with the idea. So Lajouet was, was the preference. I always felt like, I, I could be wrong about this, but I always felt part of the reason he never really got his due as a, a really this amazing ball player, I don't mean at that time, but from fans who look back, is because nobody could pronounce his name. You know, it wasn't like Babe Ruth. It was easy to say. It, it, I could be wrong about well, that. It, it may it may have had an effect. I know later on there was a fellow that uh, pronounced it a joy, who was a Detroit right. Tiger uh, uh, official. And, That's what uh, I thought it was right. originally. But yeah. But no, uh, Lajouet. Okay, <laughs> so we have Lajouet and Hugh Chalmers as kind of the three lead characters. Uh, so maybe if you could just talk a bit about each one uh, or, or sure. whatever you'd like to say about the three lead characters. No, I, I'll, I'll talk about those three, and I would add one more. Uh, Ban Johnson, the uh, American League president, I would, would consider as a, a major actor in the Okay, in I haven't decided who's going to play him in the movie yet because he never smiled. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll work it out. Anyway, the... Uh, I think the, we should start with Hugh Chalmers, and that's probably the least well-known of, of anybody uh, in the book, and that's because he did not have a, a real tie to, uh, to baseball. He loved baseball, 
Hugh is uh, like me from Ohio. Uh, he uh, grew up in the Dayton, Ohio area. He uh, was a marketing guru at a time when there weren't very many. So he was one of the real pioneers in marketing. Uh, with the National Ca Cash Register Company, a huge company out of Dayton. And uh, so he started out and worked his way up. He, he worked his way up so fast and became so popular and uh, well-liked in the company that he eventually got fired. Uh, he was making more money at that time than the President of the United States. Um, <laughs> and the, uh, the head man did not appreciate uh, the power that he had. Uh, the, the employees had asked him to uh, uh, help them with some issues. And so uh, even though he was great and he was terrific, he, he was out of a job. But he had caught the eye of some young entrepreneurs in the Detroit, Michigan area. And you have to understand back in the early 1900s, uh, there were tons and tons of young people trying to get started in the auto industry. It was a uh, hot topic, uh, uh, you know, an idea uh, factory. And four or five of them were aware of, of Hugh Chalmers, and they approached him with the idea of going in with them on an automobile company. So they started this automobile company, and uh, pretty soon they, these gentlemen kind of branched out on their own. It's kind of hard to tell uh, exactly what happened, but it eventually became uh, the Chalmers Motor Company. So Hugh Chalmers was the, was the, the lead man. Uh, the, the vehicles sold pretty well. There was a lot of competition, but he loved baseball. He, uh, he would uh, speak a lot, and when he spoke, he always would throw in some baseball terms. Uh, you could uh, find a couple articles here and there in the old articles, uh, a luncheon speech. Uh, and he would talk about this, and I think because of his marketing background and because of his uh, um, uh, a terrific love of baseball, that he hatched this plan to offer an automobile. He went to the what they call the National uh, Commission, which was the, uh, the ruling body of, of Major League Baseball back in the early 1900s. Uh, he went uh, to that group with the uh, idea of offering an automobile to the uh, batter in baseball who had the highest batting average for 1910. The idea was to continue this as an ongoing uh, program for four or five years. So. Uh, National Commission at the time is, uh, was made up of um, the National League president, uh, the American League president, Van Johnson, who I mentioned a, a little, uh, just a minute or so ago, um, and August Gary Herman, who was the majority uh, shareholder of the uh, Cincinnati Reds. Uh, the makeup of this uh, triumvirate, though, was the... Was the uh, Really, the power broker you would think would have been August Gary Herman because he was uh, sort of the National League owner. He had the National League um, uh, president, but the uh, the real power broker was Van Johnson because he and Gary Herman were uh, good friends. So they they took the proposal, and there, even though later on in 1910 they would all say they had serious misgivings about taking on this project, at the time there was not a whole lot of bannering back and forth, and they accepted the proposal. What was interesting, uh, if you look at it today, uh, 
um, batting average as, as a major uh, prize winner, would you wouldn't bat your eye at it. Um, uh, even though we still keep batting averages, we have other uh, uh, measures of a, of a ball player's uh, talents as to who the best ball player would be. But back in 1910, when Chalmers made this offer, the uh, batting title was very important, and um, I believe that it really would signify at that time the best uh, player in baseball. So there was a lot of interest in this. So uh, Hugh Chalmers then, that's, that's a little bit of background about Chalmers. Uh, it gives you an idea of, uh, if we were casting his character who we would, uh, would look at. Um, so you, you look at the, um, the offer was made. Uh, it was an offer a lot of people have written about the Chalmers race. It appears in uh, uh, maybe a, a, a three or four pages in the book here, a book there, and various texts. Many uh, people felt that uh, the offer was made to have a, the best uh, a car, one of the Chalmers vehicles, uh, given to the uh, best ball player in each league, but that's not the case. It was for the overall uh, best uh, hitter with the highest batting average. And the offer was a Chalmers 30 automobile, a $1,500 vehicle. Uh, at the time, there were a lot of people in America that um, w were not making that much money uh, in a year. So it was a valuable prize, and, um, and it, it, a lot of the ball players expressed interest in winning this prize. It would not only signify that they were the best ball player in, in uh, Major League Baseball at the time, but it would also um, be quite a prize. Um, although some of these ball players already had automobiles by 1910. So anyway, uh, that's Hugh Chalmers, and uh, you, you kind of go through a process where, uh, when I when I uh, formulated the book, my idea was that there would be a lot of uh, back and forth during the season with. Uh, I don't know if you ever saw the movie, the, the, uh, the young men and their flying machines, but they. They had these airplanes, and they went off into into a, uh, a race. And I kind of imagined there'd be all these ball players that we were all would be familiar with that were uh, uh, batting back and forth during the year, and, and it would all you know come down to the end with you know, six, seven uh, uh, players with a chance to, to win the uh, prize. That was not the case. Um, as the year uh, panned out, uh, it came down to uh, two ball players, uh, one. Uh, Ty Cobb, who, uh, of course, every, everybody, even today, uh, uh, knows the name. Uh, Ty Cobb, um, who had uh, really hit the baseball scene hard around 1907 uh, when, it, when he really became a star, but uh, the, probably considered in 1910 the best player in baseball uh, by any measure, uh, a fierce competitor, um, loved by uh, uh, the Detroit Tiger fans and, and that stopped pretty much right there. Uh, he was, <laughs> he was ba you know, baseball's um, uh, fiercest, fiercest competitor and, and probably most uh, hated ball player by the, by the fans in 1910. Um, the Tigers have been very successful uh, playing in the World Series um, the uh, previous three years and in that time period um, Cobb had done well, but the Tigers had not won. So going into 1910, they certainly had to be a team that uh, uh, would be up at the top of anybody's list. 
So he's the he's the young guard at that time. I think he was in his mid twenties in 1910. Um, and so he was still on the rise, and he'd won the batting title already several times. So he was the odds-on on favorite. Uh, the, the old guard in, in this race was represented by Napoleon Lajeret. Uh, Napoleon Lajeret, uh, people today don't probably realize it, but a lot of the folks here tonight, that uh, the Cleveland Naps were named after Napoleon Lajeret. He was really the, the most popular player in baseball, so you had an immediate interplay with uh, Ty Cobb as being probably the least popular ball player, and Napoleon Lajeret, who was uh, generally very well liked by the fans and the, and the press in the various cities, uh, not not beloved by the press, uh, but but certainly uh, well liked a, a lot more than Ty Cobb. There were other. Players and, and during the during the year, um, uh, a number of players made a move. Uh, uh, for example, uh, a, a young New York Giant player, Fred Snodgrass, uh, who a lot of you here are familiar with. Um, he was in his rookie year, but early in the year, he actually had the lead uh, in the race. In 1910, I believe, turned out to be his best season uh, hitting uh, by for average. Uh, so he was. Um, was uh, an early leader, but he did not have enough at bats. He was a, a first year, basically a first year player. So the, the question was, would he get enough at bats? As it turned out, he got enough at bats, but not high enough average. Uh, you had, uh, of course, an early contender was Hannes Wagner. Everybody knows uh, Hannes Wagner here tonight. Uh, one of the all-time great ball players. He'd won several batting titles already, uh, but he didn't have one of his great years in 1910. He was kind of re reaching the edge. Another young player who had a, a really a terrific season uh, in 1910, uh, Tris Speaker, would bat uh, 340 uh, in 1910 and, and uh, became an, uh, one of the all-time great ball players. So you, you had a lot of candidates uh, for this. Um, I'm sure I'm leaving out a couple more. We may talk about them later. But uh, the point I was uh, starting to make is that they all dropped out rather early from the race. The race really came down to Ty Cobb, the uh, least liked ball player, Napoleon Lajeway, the, the best liked ball player. And I say that a couple times because that figures into the story rather dramatically towards the end of the year. And, and it comes down to literally the, well, it comes down to the last day, but sort of the last couple of days in a, in a way uh, as far as Ty Cobb stopping playing right it came down to the to the actually the final uh, series for each uh, each of the uh, uh, players Cobb and, and Lajway it, it, it uh, rolled down actually to uh, to the final day because Ty Cobb took the final two games off thinking he already won the prize uh, and so um, that, that kind of added to the drama I have a, qu I have a question about that here you have this guy who was this fierce, fierce competitor, uh, and he decides he's not going to play the last two days because he thought he had this one. Right. In some ways, it struck me that it, it almost seemed to go against his personality, or, or what you would think was his personality. If he was this true, fierce competitor, you would think, I'm going all the way, and screw this guy. Let, let, him, let him take it from me. I'm going to get another five hits. Another. So... And, and the fact that you talk about what he that he was kind of already 
onto another uh, on the road. Right. If you could talk about that a little, I, I found that fascinating. Well, I, I, honestly, uh, it all kind of factors into what makes uh, the Chalmers race so interesting, and that is nobody really knew what the batting averages were. Uh, they might have thought so, and I kind of feel he got a bad tip. <laughs> uh, he thought he had it sewn up, uh, but uh, he is a competitor. He wanted the, he wanted the vehicle very much. Um, neither man, though, as the, as the season wore down, and, and you can see that the, the photo on the book, I think, is a classic baseball photo because both of the, uh, Cobb and Lajoie were seated in the back of a Chalmers vehicle. The picture was taken uh, in uh, late September or early October, excuse me, the last um, the last uh, series between the Tigers and the uh, uh, Naps, and in Detroit. The photographers were all there to take a picture. This had, had become a uh, really a national obsession. I mean, it was out overshadowing the World Series in interest uh, as to who would, would win the, the car. And um, I guess back there was an auto, <laughs> automobile. <laughs> and the, um, the photo is interesting uh, for, for the reason that neither of these gentlemen would sit in the front seat. The photographers, they, they, would, they would say, come on, uh, who's going to get up in the front seat? Neither man would get there. Uh, there are some that say that was the ballplayer superstition because ballplayers, uh, as they are today, but back then they had terrific superstitions. And, and so it may have been that. But I feel that neither man wanted to act like it was important to him to win that vehicle. Uh, oh, shucks, you know, that's no big thing. I'm a ball player. I played the game... I don't play for prizes and things like that. And I think they were just both, neither one wanted to show the other one up and show too much interest and get in that front seat. But they wanted that vehicle. And th their comments later on after the race was over and after the controversy uh, would, uh, would support that. So I, I find the, the photograph very interesting. And, and so your question was about him taking off two days. I honestly think he thought there was no way he had been told, like the, the, the newspapers, that uh, he was it would take eight or nine hits for uh, for Lajoie to to uh, even challenge him for this, and that goes back to the the way uh, ball games were scored back in, in in that early day, and it, it's uh, I get into that quite a bit in the book because I I don't, I don't think it's been discussed uh, a lot previously. Um, and I can get into that a little bit with you, but I don't want to get off your, your track there. So. That's all right. Well, we can touch on that uh, because I think that's, uh, that's another very interesting part without also giving away too much of the book. Sure. But if you could just uh, touch on that a bit about scoring the, at uh, the time, all right, 1910. The, they had official scores back then, and, uh, but the, the official scores um, were appointed by the team back in those days. So the, the team would uh, pick out one of the reporters. And if, if you recall, back in those days, there were a lot of newspapers in many, many cities. Uh, cities uh, other than, than New York, uh, Detroit had a number of, of uh, daily newspapers. Cleveland had many. St. Louis uh, had many, and they figure into this prominently. Um, but they would the teams would choose one of the uh, reporters, um, and they would um, score the games, but at the same time, all the other newspapers had their re reporters there. Keep in mind, baseball was the big thing 
at that time. Uh, certainly, boxing play, uh, was was big in the, the day, but baseball was the, the only game in town, so to speak. And so you had all these sports writers sitting there, and they kept their own books, um, but only one was the official score. But he had no training, and there was no uniformity. So you know, you go to the uh, to the ball game and. Uh, you see what you see, and you've got the official score, and then you've got all these other uh, reporters, and they all write their own articles, and there's a box score in every newspaper, and there's differences in, in that regard. So uh, the, it was a built-in problem when the National Commission decided to accept Hugh Chalmers' offer for his Chalmers 30, but... Uh, only later on would they acknowledge that they made a huge mistake, and so uh, the, the official the official reporting as the season went on became a, a big issue. And to add to the uh, to the uh, suspense over who really was leading in the race, uh, the when the when the scorer would hand in their official report uh, after each game, it would go to the league offices, the National League and the American League. For the American League, that was uh, uh, the records were kept by the league secretary Robert McCroy, who was Ban Johnson's uh, secretary. In the American League, and, and around July 4th, they would is, they did this not just in 1910. They issued a list of the the batting uh, averages. And the leading batters were listed, and that was an official record, and you could look in the, any newspaper uh, that carried it. Uh, the uh, National League did not issue any uh, averages, official averages, the entire season. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you, what you did, that you would uh, look in your paper, and you'd be seeing these. Uh, if you recall, the Sunday newspaper always carried the averages. Uh, they would carry the batting averages, and you could look in your Sunday paper, and they were kept by a reputable, uh, oh, it might be the Associated Press, or uh, there was another gentleman uh, who kept averages uh, also, and uh, syndicated these out, but you couldn't rely on them. If you were the, a ball player, you shouldn't have relied on them. I don't know <laughs> if they even thought about things like that, but but they shouldn't have. So... Um, so these reports were coming in, and nobody really knew what the actual uh, totals were. And if you followed your own newspapers, uh, Ty Cobb might have gone two for four in the newspaper, but the official score, uh, even if he had, his box also did two for four, he might have thought about it overnight. And when he sent in his report, he might have said, well, I, you know, that was uh, an error. I'm going to, it was, he was uh, one for four. So it really made a difference, and it, it, there was a lot of confusion as to who was doing what. So now we get to Sportsman's Park in St. Louis, the last day of the season. Ty Cobb thinks he has this sewn up. He's off doing whatever he's doing. Right, he'd been in Chicago the first day, two days, of the, and played the games. And by the way, his manager, Hugh Jennings, also took off the last couple of games. So, you know, it's kind of laissez-faire. For, they, yes. they were not... Uh, just a little background. The Tigers were a disappointment that season, and they, they were not in the, the pennant race. And some of the Tiger players felt that it was because Ty Cobb was more interested in his own batting average than he was in winning and helping the team win games. Um, and Napoleon Lajoie's, um 
Naps were also out of it. And they, so the, the Tigers were in, in uh, Chicago playing the, uh, the White Sox, a four-game series. And as we've mentioned, after the first two games, Cobb decided he had it sewn up. Or whatever the newspapers were saying were correct. So he left to come back to uh, Philadelphia to play a, an all-star with an all-star team that was playing uh, against the Philadelphia Athletics, who were the American League champions in 1910, because there was a delay between the two leagues, and the National League's uh, uh, games were going to go a little bit longer. So the Athletics didn't want to get stale, so Connie Mack had um, worked it out so that they could have an all-star. And it was a good, a good all-star game. And I think Ty wanted to get there, and he was driving his vehicle across uh, to... Uh, uh, Philadelphia to join up uh, with the All-Stars. Which uh, broke down. Yeah, the vehicle broke down and he was he was late getting there. Of course, Ty was late getting to other things too. <laughs> if you remember the old Hall of Fame picture of the induction ceremony, he was late to that as well. So, <laughs> so now we're at, it's the last day um, and what Napoleon Lajoie does that day is also going to bring us into a couple of the supporting characters as well. Jack O'Connor and Robert Hedges. Correct. Who come into this story that day and thereafter. Right. And uh, so if you could just talk a little bit about what happens on the field sure. and what happened at afterward. And I'll add in there a, a fellow named uh, Harry Howell, handsome Harry Howell. Um, no relation to the uh, New York Rangers, Harry, no. Harry Howell. The, uh, the Naps had a four-game series set with the uh, St. Louis Browns. Uh, the, Saint, uh, the Naps were, I think, in fourth or fifth place uh, at that point. The Browns were dead last. They uh, won maybe 46, 47 games, lost over 100 games. Their, their first-year manager uh, was Jack O'Connor, who was known uh, by two nicknames, Peach Pie O'Connor, that was a nickname given to him uh, because he uh, played with the Peach Pie uh, team or whatever in the early days in St. Louis. He was a native of St. Louis. And the name that I found a lot more apt, Rowdy Jack. So it was Rowdy Jack <laughs> O'Connor, and I'll call him Rowdy Jack uh, tonight. Uh, the, um, so they were the worst team, and uh, the Naps were not a whole lot better. So they were basically uh, not playing for anything. And if, if you recall uh, your baseball history, the last game of the year often was uh, almost a farce. Um, you'd have some games, Ty Cobb might be pitching. Uh, um, uh, one of my favorite players, George Sisler, would occasionally pitch the last couple of innings of, uh, of, of uh, the last game of the year. Um, in, in this particular uh, case... Um, really the, the, an article that appeared in one of the St. Louis papers when they asked Jack O'Connor about this last series he uh, spent about one minute talking about that and talking about the next season because he was <laughs> contracted out for, for two years so he didn't want to talk anymore he was ready to move on um, maybe they would have all gone back if they'd had an offer to play in an all-star game as well <laughs> so, uh, so the, the four game series started uh, and there were some um, uh, areas of concern when you look back and read the articles uh, that the first two games there were some things going on uh, to uh, help uh, uh, Napoleon Lajoie even that that earlier some favoritism shown to him in the way that uh, players were uh, uh, fielding the ball and, and, and things like that uh, we don't have time to get into all of that tonight but 
that's an area that's never really been explored uh, too much. And when I got into that, I found that there were some things going on there because there was some animosity uh, uh, going in against Ty Cobb, but when the word got out that he had left early, two games early, uh, showing that type of cockiness and everything, I think that that set in. And, uh, and there was also an issue that um, not too many have, have addressed, but two years ago the Browns, in the same situation, had actually uh, won games that kept the Naps from winning the, uh, uh, the pennant in 1908. And uh, Napoleon Lajway, after that, had publicly stated it was the lowest point of his career. So here we are again with Lajway in St. Louis, the last weekend of the uh, series. And I feel personally, uh, just taking it a step beyond um, what's factual, that um, they wanted to, to help him out a little bit. So you've got all those factors coming together, and you come down to a doubleheader because of a rainout. So they're playing two games on October 9th. The uh, St. Louis Browns normally are drawing at this time of the year and throughout the year about uh, maybe 1,500 people, if that, that much. 10,000 people show up for this doubleheader because of the interest nationally. It's in all the papers. There's headlines. There are um, boxes in the, in the papers that you'll look at that the, the Chalmers race, you know, who's ahead, who's not, Lajewey, Cobb, um, Disappointment that Lajoie has fallen fallen back. People are happy with cops. So there was a lot of uh, uh, back and forth going on throughout the country. So the interest in St. Louis is great. The biggest crowd of the year shows up for two meaningless games, and uh, the game started. And, I, and it's an interesting doubleheader. I'll let you enter into that or lead into that if you want, or I'll go right through it. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can you can go through it without giving uh, too much. Too much away. away. Yeah. Okay, that's hard to do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know some of you are familiar with it, but um, the uh, we can start with with uh, maybe a, a theory or two that I had thrown into the book, and that, the uh, uh, the the away, uh, the first time he comes up uh, hits a triple uh, hits when. Uh, some people said it was a legitimate triple. Other people said uh, that the uh, the young rookie that was playing uh, uh, center field um, did uh, not play the ball honestly. But uh, the, the point that I try to make book in is that um, by swinging away, it shows to me that at least going into the doubleheader, Napoleon Lajoie, who has always had always up until that time been a very upstanding. Uh, individual uh, was not uh, involved in any kind of chicanery that night or th that doubleheader going into it <laughs> and I'll stop with <laughs> the going into it the second time he comes up in the first game of the doubleheader he hit a might have been a swinging bunt but it was pretty much swinging uh, is the emphasis on the word swinging uh, to Bobby Wallace the Hall of Fame shortstop for the St. Louis Browns and um, beats it out. Uh, and there was a lot of talk about how, how he ever would have beaten out that throw with Wallace being a great shortstop, although he was getting older. Uh, he was nearing the end of his career. But Lajoie, uh, by stature, was a big man. He was not known for his speed, although he was a, a pretty good uh, uh, base stealer. He, he used uh, his smarts more than his speed. I think he 
may, may have had 26 steals that year. And he was, you know, in his mid-30s at that point, nearing uh, um, that point in his career when he was starting to slow down. And he was not uh, known to be, do a lot of bunting, but he was a pretty good bunter. But anyway, he's, it was a swinging-type bunt, uh, emphasis on swinging, and he beats it out. So he's now two for two. And uh, the next time he comes up, and it's... Newspaper uh, writers, uh, sports writers, talk about this. There was a no, uh, noticeable uh, infield uh, uh, setup. Uh, whether it had been that way, and uh, Knapp, or he went by Larry Lashaway, but uh, whether Knapp had just noticed, or somebody bumped him in the dugout and said, "If you'll notice, the third baseman is playing uh, almost out into the outfield." So uh, the third baseman is a young rookie named John Red Corridan. Uh, he's playing in his 26th Major League Baseball game, his 13th at, uh, at, at third, uh, third base. He actually filled in for Bobby Wallace at shortstop, and pretty much a shortstop going in, but had been switched over. So he is out on the, almost on the outfield grass, and at this point, Lajoie bunts the ball. And I won't go through each at bat, but I will tell you at the end of the day that Lajoie was 8 for 8 and arguing that he should have been 9 for 9. Interestingly enough, in the, the morning, one of the morning papers in St. Louis, the, the headlines were, and of course, again, nobody really knew uh, what it was going to turn out to be, that he needed about 8 hits that day in order to <laughs> take the batting title. So anyway, you see where we're at at the end of the of the double header. Now, during the early parts of the game, the fans are cheering wildly at, at each hit or bunt or whatever you want to call them, and uh, the uh, it pretty much stayed that way. But as the day went on, there were cat calls, there were boos, there were people upset, and the people that were the most upset were the sports writers that were watching this. And also uh, the owner of the Browns, uh, Robert uh, Hedges, Colonel Hedges. Um, he was uh, obviously uh, very upset about it, and um, that would lead into a lot of things that happened after. Yeah, absolutely, which we can get into. I do want to now just see, though, if anybody from uh, the clubhouse crowd would like to ask a question about wherever we are or anything about the story. Uh, I yes. did have, uh, I was curious, Greg, you mentioned that 10,000 people showed up for the doubleheader. Correct. And that was a large crowd in those days? In St. Louis it was a large, keep in mind that St. Louis had been a bottom, bottom feeding team for a long time, and this was one of their worst teams, so it goes a, lo a long way if, it's, if you're one of the worst Browns teams. Um, so... Uh, yeah, that was it. Was a huge crowd for for St. Louis and the, and the biggest of the year. And they probably, I don't know if they drew two hundred thousand for the season. So it was a lot, pretty large percentage of of their overall. Uh, uh, Do you happen to know the capacity for the stadium that they played in? Or? I'm I'm going to go out and I really I, I'd be going out on a limb, uh, yeah. but it was probably around twenty five thousand Sportsman's Park. Uh, it was a nice ballpark, um, and if it, w if it eventually uh, became that and, and bigger, but maybe somebody else in here knows that's a ballpark uh, uh, historian. But I'd say in the, in the mid twenties. We need we need Lee, we need Lee Lowen for Yeah, if, if if my friend Lee was here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Five seven. 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 Five seven.
vehicle or some other noteworthy prize, either for batting average or There, there had been a, a trophies given for the, uh, uh, like the top uh, player, the top batting average, uh, but it was more a trophy. This was far beyond anything that had ever been offered. And uh, because of the controversy that this caused and the embarrassment that it caused and the fact that it so overshadowed the... Uh, the World, 1910 World Series going in that it became a real problem for Bam Johnson and the National Commission. Um, they did not ever offer the automobile prize again, but there was a Chalmers, the Chalmers was offered the automobile for four more years um, to 1914, but it was almost uh, the early uh, most valuable player, and it was given to the, the top player in each, uh, each league. And uh, so that was never given just to the top batter for a batting average. It was a compilation voted on by sports writers throughout the country. Okay. I will not misremembering this, but wasn't Ty Cobb going into the stands one time giving up a fan? Yes. And did that happen before this? I, you know, I'm thinking that that happened... Um, Right, maybe it was after this. I I, I don't know the exact time, but I think like if it was, it was a year or two. It it, it uh, formulated what I uh, precipitated what I call one of the first baseball strikes. Nineteen twelve. Nineteen twelve. Okay, yeah, two years. I, I was Which close. Was that? Uh, yes, but this this was after that. But he'd already had a series of incidents that uh, fights uh, fights with teammates. Um, in fact, uh, after the. Uh, uh, the announcement was made, and without going again into too much detail, <laughs> eight uh, Detroit Tiger teammates sent a telegram of congratulations to uh, Napoleon Lazarus. <laughs> so that kind of gives you an idea where they where they are. So a similar childhood debate for me. So I'm obviously as a Tigers fan, growing up, we're all Kyle apologists, despite the fact that he probably spit on me if I was actually around that time. But the, the story I heard, you brought up a Hall of Fame picture earlier. The story that, that we all kind of shared on Playground was that all the other players were jealous of Cobb, and so they kind of called the photographer in early and took a picture without him. What do you know? Is there any proof at all that, that the players got together and said, you know what, just to kind of stick it to him, we want to take a picture without him, or is it just late? I, I've never heard of that. I think he I think he was late. There was some talk about he didn't want to have his picture taken with someone. I forget which one of the... The others uh, were there. Maybe somebody here remembers Dennis? that. Dennis? Uh, Cobb got there maybe 15, 20 minutes late. I've written a book about the induction settlement. spent six years working on this one. He got there late. And Tony said he didn't want to have his picture taken with Commissioner Landis because they had, that was the time they had the Chicago Black Sox stand Landis. Cobb and Speaker was supposed to have been involved in something for the games, and uh, so Landis, if anything, was supporting him. And the guy who never showed up, who was bringing Dutch London, never showed up from California, and so the whole thing was dropped. But he said at the time, one of his kids got sick. He drove all the way from, I think it might have been California, and one of his kids got sick. Uh, and but he told the truth. 20 years later about Landis. He didn't say that right away. It took over 20 years before he told the truth. So that's... that's Thank you. Appreciate it. Actually, uh, yes, John? Uh, Rick, I'm still reading uh, 
both, but I'm um, just curious, why the 30 as opposed to the Chalmers had other models? Why did he select the 30 to avoid? I have no idea. Uh, the I think the 30 was, uh, if I had to venture a guess on it, was the vehicle that they were trying to uh, promote um, nationally at the time. Uh, the uh, Chalmers vehicles were very successful in the auto races. Back then, uh, these companies would race uh, against each other with their vehicles, and they, they were very successful. Um, and, and by the way, Cobb already had a, at least one Chalmers, and Cobb also was had his own auto dealership in, in uh, Augusta. He sold uh, Hupmobiles, and he was late in getting to spring training, although he was always late getting to spring training, but he, his excuse in 1910 spring training was that uh, he still had some vehicles he needed to uh, sell off his, off his uh, showroom. So he was very interested in vehicles, but I, do, I don't know why that was the vehicle, but uh, I think they were trying to promote it, and it had a, a lot of good publicity because it had won some races. The uh I'm not a car expert, but I know there's no Chalmers Autos today. Whatever happened with Chalmers Automobiles? The um, Chalmers uh, probably peaked uh, in sales um, right around the 1910, 1911, 1912, and then it started going down a bit. It was uh, eventually purchased, I believe, by the Hudson um, Motor Car Company. You might be more familiar with that than the Chalmers, and eventually became part of Chrysler. Uh, it was consumed by Walter Chrysler and his company. Um, we think of, of, of uh, the Chrysler as a huge, huge company. Back then, Walter Chrysler was just like uh, Hugh Chalmers. It could have been the Chalmers company that we're honoring today, you know, with uh, uh, knowing about it, or like the Ford. They were all young uh, entrepreneurs going after that dream at that time. I, I have another question about if we can just skip ahead. So this is all 1910. Something in the book, you take us to 1957 in Florida. Uh, and if you can just talk a little bit about the two our two leads in 1957 in Florida. By 1957, uh, Napoleon Lajoie was living, and his wife, they were living in Florida. And uh, uh, Napoleon did not, uh, Nap did not, uh, attend a lot of baseball games. He, he was pretty much a, a dropout. I think he was uh, at the 1920 World Series when the, by then the Cleveland Indians won the World Series. But um, So he was living down in, in Florida and uh, Ty Cobb came for a visit. Uh, we don't know at that point what, uh, what was said. I'd love to have been there. They sat out on the porch and talked. And an article or two... Uh, hit the newspapers at that time uh, about the two old-timers getting together and talking. But they had um, gotten together and sort of, uh, if there was a hatchet to bury, they buried it in a, a, a train uh, ride. Uh, the, often the teams would uh, take the, the same uh, means of transportation back in those days. They must have sat together and talked in 1911 and talked about the race and things like that. But... Um, they, they, I don't think that in front of each other they really talked a lot about uh, 1910, but it was something that certainly uh, Lajoie never forgot about. And uh, uh, even after his death, uh, his nephew made some remarks about what he thought about the whole thing and how it had turned out. 
before I have a, okay, what was the actual value? Um, well, of course, there's still. I mean, supposedly. Yeah, I was going to say even today, even today, there's there is some controversy, but um, the announced averages uh, were about. Uh, I'm going to round these off: uh, 385, 384 in favor of, uh, Ty, as it turned out, Ty Cobb. Uh, the actual averages, as eventually um, discovered through uh, work of. Uh, some uh, saber, early saber uh, statisticians and, and chief Pete Palmer, who many of you are probably familiar with, uh, uh, away actually uh, it would have been three like 384, uh, 383, but it, it was in the hundreds uh, of points even with the, with those corrections. And after the book came out, I had a uh, a gentleman uh, email me um, who works uh, very hard on Cobb and Lajeway and the statistics and said even though it had never been announced, he had found that there was one box score where Lajeway had one less time at bat. So it would have even been closer than, than the announced and, and what most people consider the official or actual, the actual averages as opposed to the official, which is still has Ty Cobb as the, as the winner. Did you have a question? <laughs> well... First of all, I just want to say, you said just a couple of things in general about Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb was a very, very, very rich man. He invested in what you said, channels later on became United Motors, which later on became General Motors. And he invested in cotton, you know, cotton shears and everything. And he made more money than he did, you know, from baseball. It's outside the comes he had. And he also had a friend he invent, who invented Coca-Cola, and he invented Coca-Cola. And the other thing was a couple other things you said that also. Well, Napoli Shoei was fast, but believe it or not, he was skinny. They called him the Flying Frenchman, but believe it or not, Hans Wagner, the Flying Dutchman, was faster than him, and he was bowling-legged. He was, um, you know, you know, like fishing, you know, very husky, you know, that type of thing. And the other thing is just to see how great they were. Napoli's both players. Napoli Shoei was the first, um, the first triple triple crown winner in the American League with uh, like a 422, some books say 426, 422, um, 14 home runs and like 100 some RBIs. And then Ty Cobb later on won the triple crown in uh, 1909 with like a 377 average, like nine home runs. Remember, it was a dead ball era. And I don't know how many RBIs, but um, they, they they were considered one of the first, the first triple crown winner of the, you know, the 1900, the turn of the century. So it's very interesting. Uh, that, that brings up an interesting thing that I, that I didn't uh, get into, and that is um, that we didn't talk about the dead ball era and, and the fact that back in that era and what made uh, the batting average so, uh, so important and, and a signification of the, the top player in baseball was that uh, a single back then meant, meant a lot, whereas uh, today it might not be taken in the same vein. Uh, you had a hit, you had very low scoring uh, ball games. You had uh, the value in, in base stealing was very very high. The, the value in bunting, bunting is an art and, and it was an art form back then. Uh, you had um, the hit and run, uh, the double steal. Uh, games uh, might often be two to one or, or one to nothing or three to two. You had pitchers that pitched the entire uh, the entire games. So uh, you had a, a totally different sphere, and um, I, I kind of uh, 
had a, have a theme in talking uh, to groups about about the uh, 1910 batting race. Uh, that 1910 was a season when uh, a base hit was as exciting as a home run, and that's the way it, it, it came down. Because uh, as we talk today, uh, over a hundred years later, we're talking about one base hit made made the difference in the. Uh, uh, the final averages and what we call the accurate accounting of, of the 1910 batting race. Small ball, inside baseball, a lot of different names for it. Uh, along those lines, you know, you hear about the dead ball uh, era, but uh, I, I don't hear too much. I don't have too much knowledge about the bats from those from those times. Where did the bats come from? Then? Who well, they, made the bats? Actually, they had the Louisville. Uh, here in Bradsley uh, had the bats back then. That was pretty much it. They were the well, there were, I'm sure there were others, but that was, um, if you ever go down to Louisville to the to the uh, bat company, the museum there, you'll see some of the early contracts signed by people like Ty Cobb, uh, uh, Napoleon Lajway, Hannes Wagner. They had their own, actually their own bats made for them to their specifications that far back. And, and was it usually for all players... The same wood? Was it ash? Was it maple? Did, did they uh, have any rules about that in those days, or was it up to the player? I think somewhat it was up to the player, but there were certainly uh, more popular uh, uh, woods used. Ash was, was one. Uh, I would think that if you had a player like Ty Cobb and he was uh, getting a lot of hits from his bats, that uh, you'd probably have a lot of other players that would, would choose something similar. <coughs> Well, I think we're uh, because of the time factor for the podcast, we're going to have to wrap up the podcast. Uh, and I think the final word on the book, once again, the title, The Chalmers Race, Ty Cobb, Napoleon Lajouet, and the controversial 1910 batting title that became a national obsession, published by the University of Nebraska Press, the author Rick Hewn. And on the back of the book, the Chalmers race seamlessly weaves its compelling stories and is a deftly told saga of a game-changing and living controversy. Gerald C. Wood, author of Smokey Joe Wood, the biography of a baseball legend. Uh, Jerry was here and is, is here tonight. Another fantastic book. So thanks to both of you, gents, uh, for giving us two great books. Thank you very much. Thank Rick. you very much. Thank you.